The Southeast leads the nation in disaster risk. Florida, Texas, and Louisiana are the most hurricane-prone states in the nation, and here in Harris County, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, recently designated 14 areas as disaster resilience zones, areas marked by a high risk of natural disasters. This is the highest number of any county in the country. As climate change continues and the risk of severe storms only intensifies, what does the future hold for Houston, and what can we do about increasing threats? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Do you have a story or a question about storms, about evacuation, mitigation strategies, and what the future holds for our storm risk here in Houston? Give us a call at 713-526-5738, extension 2. At 713-526-5738, extension 2. Today on Gulf Streams, we're talking with Jim Blackburn, an environmental lawyer, planner, and professor of practice in environmental law at Rice University, and the co-director of Rice's Severe Storm Prevention, Education, and Evacuation from Disaster Center, or the Speed Center. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining. Oh, you bet, Weston. Good to be here. Uh, just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about how you wound up where you are and what you did to get into this work? Just the, maybe the quick version of your, your lifelong uh, interest and involvement in environmental work. Well, it is a long story, but I'll try to make it as short as I can. I've been around for a long time, but in 1979, I wrote a, a paper. I got a grant from the Texas Coastal Marine Council and wrote a paper called the Texas Law of Drainage with a case study on Harris County. And that has sent me on a long pathway about litigation and flooding and studying flooding. And after uh, Hurricane Ike came in in um, 2008, I believe it was, uh, we got a grant at the Speed Center at Rice. Uh, Phil Bedian is the director, and he asked me to be co-director. And we made a proposal to the Houston Endowment to study uh, lessons learned from Hurricane Ike, and that sent us on a several-year study of hurricanes in this region and really really catapulted me into the, I'd say, serious study. I had litigated flooding issues for many years, uh, but as a litigator, you look at things one way. As a researcher and as an analyst, you look at it a different. So I would say really it was that grant from Houston Endowment that kind of sent Speed Center forward and sent me forward into really what has become really quite an important part of my professional career. Absolutely. And just to that end, can you tell us a little about what the Speed Center is and what the kind of work it's doing is? Sure. The Speed Center is the Severe Storm Center at Rice. Uh, Phil Bedian is our director, and Phil's a computer modeler. Mm. So a lot of our work involves sophisticated computer modeling of both overland flows and of hurricanes. And we work with uh, Dr. Clint Dawson out of the University of Texas at Austin, and we run computer uh, hurricane simulations on the supercomputer up at the University of Texas at Austin. And sort of fascinating. We can kind of spawn up any hurricane that you might conceive <laughs> of and and replicate it on the computer and kind of see what different pathways for different directions, mm -hmm. uh, different uh, how wide the storm is, how, uh, how powerful the winds are, and to be able to see the differences it makes in how much flooding we have. Um, I would say that we are 
currently very poorly prepared for what may be coming uh, just because we have few defenses. Well, let's start with maybe what may be coming. I mean, we're doing all this, you're doing all this modeling, you know, I I have seen some of the the kind of graphs and charts that you've put together in the past. Um, And can you just walk us through a little bit? What does the future of storms, hurricanes, severe storms look like in Houston? What are we expecting going forward? Well, let's start off by kind of breaking it into two pieces. There's rainfall flooding, Mm -hmm. the Harvey type of storms, and and there's going to be a whole kind of, uh, if you will, one direction with those. Then there's also hurricanes themselves and the surge that is generated by a hurricane when it comes ashore. Uh, Surge flooding is extremely violent. It's Mm -hmm. wind-driven. It's got waves on top of it. It'll crack buildings in half and will basically turn uh, pieces of debris into battering rams and you could have several uh, kind of blocks inland where you could have uh, massive damage we're particularly worried about the uh, ship channel mm-hmm. and about the storage tanks up on the ship channel and you know worst case a container gets floated and gets rammed into the side of a tank and the, the these tanks are not prepared for a container ramming into them so yeah. that would be kind of a, a worst case on that type of storm But in both cases, climate change will worsen the reality. With the rainfall flooding, we're just anticipating larger and larger, more intense rainfalls in, if you will, in the same period of time, say 50 years ago, we will be seeing more intense rains uh, with climate change, and we'll be seeing a more absolute amount of uh, potential uh, flood water. With regard to hurricane surge flooding, uh, probably the scariest thing is a Category 1 or 2 storm can be turned into a 4 or 5 overnight. Um, yeah. Intense uh, or, or sudden intensification is probably the biggest new development, but we're expected to see more Category 3, 4, and 5 storms in the future. Mm. So we'll see bigger storms. We'll have more rain. Um the, the edges, if you will, if you think of the bell curve of kind of standard distribution, climate change works at the edges. And, mm. it, you know, the droughts will be worse, but the floods will be worse. Uh, thank you. That's, that's clarifying to hear that drought and, and, and storm surge and, and rain events that we're having. Yeah, these, these edges of both events increasing. I'm wondering if you can talk some. I, I know I've heard you speak about this before, but, you know, you're hinting at these, these kind of one-in-50-year events, maybe not so infrequent. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, you know, I, I know you've modeled this out and you've kind of demonstrated it before. How much more likely are we going to be to see some of these things that we think of, you know, a Harvey-level disaster, an Ike-level disaster? Are these going to be the same kind of benchmarks or are these actually going to become more of what we think of as regular events? I am afraid that they're going to become more regular events. That seems to be uh, kind of what we're seeing. Um, our, you know, most of our engineering uh, relative to flooding has been based on the historic past. Mm. And the problem with climate change is we really can't use the past as an indicator of what's going to happen in the future. Mm. Uh, it's really almost the, the very recent past perhaps gives you an, an indication. So I would say that our whole way of, it, of engineering and thinking about, say, the civil engineering side of flooding, I, I think has to change. 
Uh, and so I think that, in a way, that may be the hardest reality about this is so many of our kind of standard practices that have served us well for 100-plus years uh, may not be reliable going into the future. And we need new tools and new ideas. And that's, that's a hard thing to be talking about in, in you know, that reality. But, for example, Harvey, when it happened, uh, I heard people say, oh, it's a 10,000-year, it's a 25,000-year mm. event. Um, well, they redid the statistics after Harvey, and we're going to be increasing. Harris County's redoing its floodplain maps, and we've gone from 13 inches in 24 hours as a 100-year rainfall okay. to about somewhere between 17 and 18 inches, depending on where you are in Harris County. So that's about a 30, 35% increase in our 100-year rainfall, and it's already out of date. Uh, and Dr. Bedian over at Rice has, has talked about a 25-inch rainfall in 24 hours being perhaps more realistically like a 100-year. Wow. And, um, and there's a, a paper uh, out of MIT that talks about uh, Harvey perhaps in the future as a 5- to 10-year recurrence event. Every 5 to 10 years? <laughs> you know, that's what came out in this publication. And... Um, and I think it was Kerry Emanuel that, that came out with that. Um, again, if you tease these numbers, mm-hmm. and if you really try to you know tease out these trends, they're they're somewhat horrifying. Um, a lot I'm, of I'm our, feeling a little horrified. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of our infrastructure um, is sized for I don't know maybe like your your street drains are sized for a two year mm-hmm. storm. Well, those two-year storms are getting much, much bigger. And so it's not going to be a surprise when you know, our streets are overwhelmed several times a year um, because we'll just be seeing. I think everyone has seen those sheets of rain come, mm-hmm. and you go, my gosh, it's raining hard. Uh, that's, the, that's what worries all of us. I, mean, I think this is so valuable because it's, you know, I, I've seen you – present previously and, and kind of benchmarked in my head, okay, you know, reducing all of these, how likely an event is by X many margins, and it gets a little, you know, mathematic, <laughs> especially for someone like me who's not a, a math person. But I think in thinking about things like these two-year storms, actually, which we would think, okay, well, that's actually, you know, something that we're going to see fairly often, a storm I'm probably pretty familiar with, not just a major benchmark like Harvey. What it points me to think about, which you were already suggesting, is the ways that our infrastructure just isn't set up to accommodate these. If these are going to continue to not just be more frequent, but more severe, and that the actual measure of what we imagine these events to look like needs to be magnified. I mean, that's that points us to these, these real interventions that we need to make across a range of things. I want to go back for a second and ask about, you had talked about the way that, you know, the way that we've thought about civil engineering historically isn't going to serve us into the future. What does that mean for infrastructure? What does that mean for our preparedness? What are some of the changes that we need to be making or or rethinking how we're going about things to address some of these needs? Well, I think, first of all, what it means is we have to be honest about climate change. Mm. And we haven't. We haven't as a community. Um, it wasn't until Bobby Tudor, as head of the Houston Partnership, came out in January of 2020 and started talking about Houston being a leader in the energy transition. Then that was sort of a green light to talk publicly about this issue in the community. Um, we, you know, Publicly, we just didn't talk much about it. I think mm-hmm. it's a state level. We may still be denying, you know, at least on certain levels, that the climate is changing. And But what that means is that 
going back 20, 30 years, you know, we, we know, we've known about climate change certainly ever since the late 80s, early 90s, if not even before that. But, I mean, we have an international convention that came in 92, um, which is, what, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and we have wasted 30 years arguing about climate change as opposed to trying to figure out what to do about it. And I think we have really lost a lot of opportunity in that time period that we're going to have to make up very quickly. Uh, For example, in the engineering community, engineers work a lot for governments. Mm. Governments is where this conversation is about climate change is most difficult because politics blow up on both (laughs) sides of this issue. And uh, I'm not so sure, frankly, that the left or the right have got it right. I mean, but they've all got strong opinions. And And engineers have learned to keep their mouths shut if they Mm -hmm. wanted to get government jobs. And so the engineering community, which ought to be leading us, is not a leader in a lot of the climate change thinking. Uh, Instead, actually, accounting firms have have ended up being leaders uh, in what's called the ESG movement, the Mm -hmm. environmental, social, and government uh, concerns that most corporations are very focused on. Accountants are really kind of the go-to group to get quality input and information. Architects have been out in the leadership, uh, but mainly because I think a lot of those clients are private sector. Uh, Mm -hmm. Certainly the accounting clients in many cases are private sector, and the private sector is on it. I mean, they've they've been working behind the scenes very quietly for a long time on these issues, and there's a lot happening. A tremendous amount of money being spent on the Texas coast right now on climate solutions, Uh, hydrogen going in. You've got uh, carbon capture, both uh, technological and natural, going on. You've got uh, wind farms going in everywhere. You've got solar going. I mean, there's a lot of money going into these areas, and yet in some circles we still don't talk about it. And that's what's hurting us. It's the failure to clearly communicate uh, what's happening and the risk associated with it, and uh, it's going to be bad. I mean, it's going to be a problem for all of us until we get on the same page about that. Well, and I think something that comes to mind there is, you know, you're, you're pointing to, to kind of private leadership and corporate leadership, and, and certainly in a number of those, you know, develop, uh, renewable resource developments and, and other arenas like this where there's an opportunity to make money, certainly we are seeing, you know, corporate entities moving in. We're also seeing it in some risk mitigation, as as you're pointing to with accounting, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a numbers game. It's okay, this is going to cost us X amount of money. And that's where I'm really intrigued, and I, and I would like to move slightly to talking about about some of the, the projects you've been working on around infrastructural solutions. I know that in particular you're thinking about nature-based solutions, but that these things are actually really essential for us to invest in now to save money down the road, that they might have a, a big cost up front to really protect us, but that protection buys us time and money down the road. Um, and so one thing that I really wanted to hear from you about is I know the Speed Center has a, a, a kind of pro- a protection plan that you've been coming up with. And if you can walk us through a little bit about that, just in terms of these severe storms and what can we do? What are, what are some of the measures that your center is promoting as possible solutions for future disaster events? No, happy to do that. Um, the storms that we're most concerned about at Speed Center are the larger storm events that have the potential to 
uh, basically impact uh, both huge amounts of uh, residential areas, particularly down in the Galveston County, Clear Lake, um, Laporte, uh, over into the NASA area. That is all very vulnerable to surge flooding, as is the Houston Ship Channel, which is the largest industrial complex in the United States and probably one of the largest in the world. And once we get above a surge of above 15 feet in elevation, uh, which we did not see in Ike. Um, Ike okay. actually missed most of the Houston region, um, at least with the surge. Uh, we had a lot of wind damage, and we had some uh, surge damage on the backside of the storm. But these storms circulate in a counterclockwise way, and uh, Ike came right up the middle of Galveston Bay. And so most of the bad surge went to the east, mm-hmm. and much of that land is undeveloped. And frankly, it recovered very quickly. Now, the Bolivar Peninsula, the beach houses were wiped out. Mm. And if you go down there now, there's a whole new group of uh, new houses that are built very high. And they look very sturdy, and I hope they will withstand. But, um, you know, we'll see. Coastal Uh, development is always risky. (laughs) Always risky. And, you know, as long as people know the risk and, uh, you know, Putting their money into it, I, you know, I assume they have the money to lose, so you know, we'll see. But if you had Ike going south of uh, Galveston, like down mm-hmm. at San Luis Pass, back down toward Freeport, if it had come straight up into the bay, it would have probably killed several thousand people because no mm-hmm. one evacuated when Ike came because it was, quote-unquote, only a Category 2 storm. Mm-hmm. But it turned out it had a very wide wind field which we think is one of the, perhaps one of the new aspects of climate change. You know, that's still yet to be kind of settled out. But the wind field was extremely broad, and it put a 17-foot surge across the uh, Bolivar Peninsula. I mean, so it was a big surge event. And um, probably got up to 20 feet uh, coming inland. And if that had happened on the south side of Galveston Bay rather than up the middle of Galveston Bay, if that storm had been 30 miles south, I think we would have seen a lot of people who didn't evacuate um, would have been to, you know, their houses would have been flooded. And this isn't gentle flooding. This was destructive flooding that would have probably have destroyed many of these structures as well. Uh, so what we're worried about is that big storm event. Now, unfortunately, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is limited in how big of a storm they can foresee. They have to be looking at a 50-year horizon. Mm-hmm. Speed Center's not limited to that, uh, that horizon. So as a private sector organization, we can look to solve the, the problems that we think will actually possibly destroy this part of the world, mm-hmm. as opposed to something that the Corps would call a 50-year event. And with climate change, it's, it's unclear how much climate change has been taken into that core 50-year projection. Uh, The bottom line is the Corps has been working on the Coastal Barrier Project, which we think is both necessary and we're supportive of it. This is what's colloquially called the Ike Dike. The Ike Dike. And that basically only protects us against Category 1, possibly a Category 2 storm. It is because of the limitations of the Corps' methodology – it doesn't protect us against the three, fours, and five. And so we have taken it upon ourselves to kind of work as a complement to the Ike uh, mm. Dike, if you will, to the coastal barrier, and work on the in-bay portion. And we think we can put a dike along the Houston Ship Channel, built with dredging material from the next big expansion that we mm. have. And we can build a 25-foot levee down one side of the Ship Channel to, to about mid-bay, 
flip over and then come into the other side and have one end anchor up in Chambers County at what's called Houston Point, and the other would connect into the Texas City levee system. And we think that that could be a very valuable addition and is absolutely essential to protect Harris County. Um, Harris County and the Ship Channel really weren't a primary focal point of the Corps project. Mm. The Corps project is really focused more on Galveston, uh, protection of Galveston, both with a backside ring levee and with a big gate structure across Bolivar. Uh, Bolivar Roads, where the ferry goes, will have a huge gate structure. And, and we're talking about structures uh, both in our project and in the core project that will be among the largest structures ever built in the world. Mm. I mean, the scale of what we're talking about is huge. And I think that's something that everyone's going to have trouble with is the scale of these projects and how big they're going to be. I mean, these will be things that people will travel around the world to see. Uh, I mean, you know, there's only one barrier of this scale uh, in the world, and it's in the Netherlands. Mm. And uh, so is this, I mean, I, the Netherlands is often pointed to as kind of the, you know, the leading edge of, of flood prevention technology. Is this something that we're, you know, directly kind of pulling from the Netherlands then, if this well, is... Um, I, yeah, I'd say certainly the thinking mm. comes from the Netherlands. I think the gate structure we're talking about mm. will be a bit different than their gate structure. Um, they've got a ball bearing, they've got two ball bearings on their gate structure <laughs> that are like 25, 30 feet in diameter. Mm. They're huge. And all of those, I mean, it, we're trying to get away from that type of design. Our design that uh, Walter P. Moore has come up with um, is essentially an arc that deploys across the ship channel. Hmm. And uh, it's kind of basically it comes from the design of these dome stadiums. Wow. Uh, the, except there's an arc that comes across the top, and that's, that's to withstand, if you will, the force of gravity. And, you know, okay. But turn it sideways. And it works incredibly well as a gate structure. Mm. And so it's a design that's never been proven. We'll have to do quite a lot of testing. <laughs> but I think we're talking about engineering challenges. We're talking about scale. I mean, you know, New York City is, is struggling with this. Um, you know, that, after I forget the name of the storm that went through up there many years ago. Sandy. Sandy, yeah, yeah. that's what it was. Uh, you know, Sandy, of course, turned left when it wasn't supposed to. Uh, they think that might have been climate-related. Mm. Uh, but... You know, if you were trying to protect New York City, you've got a number of very deep passages that have to be gated. Mm. I mean, the cost of that is just incredible. But if you don't work at that scale, you're not doing a lot of good. Uh, if you build small protection against a huge storm, you're really misleading your people. And, and so part of, the, I think, the difficulty here that all of us have uh, and I think the core, I think the Harris County Flood Control, and uh, certainly the politicians, is understanding both the scale of the challenge, the scope of the solutions in terms of size, and then talking kind of honestly and reasonably about it. And so much of this, on the one hand, is driven by climate change, mm -hmm. but yet we haven't had a good public discussion about climate change, so there's a real disconnect. Mm between kind of, if you will, perception. Uh, and I think people in their gut know that there's something weird going on with the weather, that the rainfalls are changing. But our public discussion of this has not been nearly as um, 
focused and sharp as it should have been. I think this is something we, we talked about a few weeks back with a panel of sociologists we had on who were talking about, you know, the difficulty of, of really working a lot of people, talking to them post-Harvey and hearing from them, you know, I believe in climate change, I'm aware of climate change, I understand that this is happening, and not necessarily thinking of that in their own community, that there's this kind of divide between, all right, there's there's the global thing that's happening, climate change, and that's this big picture thing, but not recognizing the way that impacts them on this really local level, and that it actually has these really fundamental changes, a lot of which what you're talking about, increased storm risk. I mean, I think if you talk to most Houstonians, very few are going to be like, oh, I think Ike is the worst storm we're ever going to have. I, I, most people I've encountered and talked to did not seem to feel that Ike is is a was a benchmark that we should be meeting. It's it's you know a kind of a base layer um, because exactly people expect far worse storms than Ike. Um, and as devastating as that was, I mean I think that points us to one of some of the big concerns around you know the Ike Dike is that it's okay. It's it's set to the protection level of Ike. Is that sufficient? <laughs> is that going to do enough? And so I'm, I'm glad to hear about the speed center proposal and these kind of further levels of, of mitigation and preparedness. I'm wondering if you can talk though. I know one of the the kind of hallmarks of that plan, and you're you're talking very explicitly about some of the technical details, but. It's also, you know, it, it's a multi-use kind of project that you're mm-hmm. that I'm seeing when I when I look through, you know, images online. You know, there's a park and there's uh, these elements that are very natural. And so, and I'm, I think you've already mentioned nature-based solutions a little bit. But wh- what does that look like? What does that mean in terms of the ways that we can actually leverage um, nature, but also things like park space as spaces for protection? Well, I think certainly. When you think about the type of money we'll be spending in the future, and and I think the Netherlands has kind of come to this. They didn't start here, but I think Mm. they've gotten here. If you're going to spend these huge amounts of money, you need to probably get more than a single benefit from that expenditure. Mm. Like the the starting point for the Galveston Bay Park Plan is there is a widening coming or deepening coming for the Houston Ship Channel. Mm. The, The port of Houston calls it Project 12. It's kind of on the drawing boards now. Well, we can take... The dredge material, there's going to be a lot of clay material that is what we call virgin clay. It's never been impacted Mm -hmm. by dredging. And we can take that and can build a 25-foot barrier Mm -hmm. with what has to be disposed of. So with a little forethought in how we handle it, we can get both a navigation project and a flood project just from the get-go. So that's just kind of what we start with. And there will be a disposal of dredge material that has to occur over the next 50 years. So why not stage that and phase it and plan it such that we can develop usable space and environmentally productive lands, uh, which is already happening on the ship channel. There's something called the Beneficial Uses Group that was formed out of a controversy that I was involved in years ago that led to... uh, dredge material being used to form wetlands in the Mm -hmm. bay itself. And we're seeing that happen, and it's very successful. And right now, we've got a Galveston Bay system that on the west side has got 27 miles of hard edge. It's riprap. What does hard edge mean? It means that the the soft edge, the wetlands have Mm -hmm. been lost, either filled or uh, many of them were lost to subsidence decades Mm ago. And all the landowners have put concrete or riprap, but it's a hard edge as opposed to a soft uh, kind of natural edge. Well, we can restore with the Galveston Bay Park Plan that lost soft edge on the west side of the bay with the back side of this disposal area. And we can open up, if you will, uh, 
this material, this dredge material, this uh, kind of material that will be going into the bay, we can open that up for recreation. And ultimately, we think there's probably about nine or 10,000 acres to be created. Wow. That would, and about half of that we think would be usable for recreation. There'll be a road out there. There may be a ferry that would connect and would open up Galveston Bay to the public. Uh, right now, there's almost no public access to Galveston Bay. We have Sylvan Beach and Laporte, and you've got the Texas City Dyke, which goes about five miles out into the bay as a kind of a straight line uh, protection, really, of the Texas City Ship Channel. And those are really the two major uh, public access points to Galveston Bay. Most of it's private, and most people, unless you have a boat, you have trouble getting to Galveston Bay. So mm-hmm. we think it could be a very a good, from a socioeconomic standpoint, from, a, if you will, a... Uh, kind of, uh, kind of, a, really a real boost overall to recreation in the community, and uh, we'll also be protecting up into the ship channel, all the way up into the uh, lower end of Sims and Braves and Greens Bayous, and I think it'll be a very beneficial project all the way around. But probably most importantly, it will protect both the residential areas along the. Um, east side of Harris County. I think a lot of people just don't realize Harris County is a coastal county. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you don't see it a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not what we focus on as a community, and I, I think this would change that. Uh, I think mm. it would become part of the landmark of this region, and um, I think that could be a real positive. Yeah, I mean, it does prompt us to think of how that allows us to reimagine where we live and how we connect to the land and how we collect, connect to the water that we're, we're right next to. It's interesting. It reminds me of um, there's a, a large project underway in New Orleans called the Mirabeau Rain Garden uh, that is you know this multi-acre site that's a rain garden but is also meant to serve as a park and a, a kind of art space and a community gathering point. And it, it is drawing my attention to the ways that, you know, yes, nature-based solutions do a lot of good for plants and animals and they do a lot of good for a lot of the different kind of environmental challenges that we're talking about. But they also are these vibrant spaces. And so it seems really exciting to hear you talking about this kind of shift that's happening in a lot of folks' mind around, yes, if we are going to invest in these protection areas, they need to be usable space in a, a myriad of ways for the communities at large. They shouldn't just be you know, a large barrier, which is probably not the most effective thing anyway. Um, but no, that's very exciting. Uh, sorry, did you? Did no, you... I just I totally agree with you. And I think that the opportunities here are just immense. Um, on the west side of Houston, saving the Katy Prairie. Mm. Whatever is left out there, the more we can save, the better. Because that's a sponge that used to protect us out on the mm. west side of town. Um, uh, the settlers that left Houston uh, kind of in the 1830s, 1840s, talked about uh, walking through water ankle deep for two or three days leaving town. Well, that was all that water that was stored out there on that prairie. Mm. And uh, the more concrete we put down, the more we dump back on ourselves, the more we flood downtown. You know, it's just uh, we're kind of doing unto ourselves. And nature, you know, has a way of not doing unto itself, at least in, in a horrific way. If we take the time to observe it and use it, it can be very beneficial. I, I want to take a, a break here for just a second to know that we are at 1232. You're listening to KPFT Houston. And if you have questions for Jim Blackburn, please give us a call at 713-526-5738, extension 2. Um, 
so something that else I wanted to talk about because we, we have hinted a little bit at the scale. I, you know, I think something that people hear about with the Ike Dike, I'm sure, and and I think if they're familiar with the, the with your protection plan, probably are thinking about our this does sound expensive. <laughs> what, are, what are the kind of numbers that we're imagining, you know, projects like this will actually entail? I know the Ike Dyke has really ballooned and some of that is when it was originally proposed, you know, this was many, many years ago now and it's taken years to get any kind of seeming movement. And so returning to that, oh, I'm, I'm doing this a little bit to return to that earlier point of investing now makes more sense mm-hmm. than waiting for the big disaster. But can you walk us through a little, what are these things going to cost? Uh, they're going to cost a lot. Um, the Ike Dyke or the Coastal Barrier uh, project currently is estimated to be $57 billion. Yeah. That is a huge number. Yeah. Uh, I think it was huge uh, in most everyone's mind. I think it surprised the core that it went mm-hmm. up that much. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, you know, it's a very ambitious plan. It's got a backside levee around Galveston. It's got dunes going down the both Bolivar Peninsula and the west end of Galveston Bay. They're going to rebuild the beach. They're going to build a uh, deep water uh, gate across Bolivar Roads between uh, Galveston Island and the Bolivar Peninsula that uh, will be probably the largest gate structure in the world. Um so, I mean, these are just a huge project, and the costs are going to be phenomenal with that. With our Galveston Bay Park plan, uh, we believe it can be built for 3 to $6 billion. Oh, um, wow. So, you know, it is, you know, so far we've not run across anything that, that uh, makes us think it would get way out of hand. Um, dredging is well understood. The, the the park plan has the benefit of being inside the bay, so it is a much shallower environment uh, where the core is building the big gate. Uh, there is 30 to 60 feet deep across two miles, and that's where all the current, if you will, comes in and out of Galveston Bay. That's the primary tidal interchange there, so it's a it's a very harsh environment. So. From an engineering standpoint, uh, what the Corps is trying to do is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. It is What we're trying to do is easier, and that's why we think it's a wonderful complement, is to have an in-bay uh, kind of solution that, frankly, may be able to be built uh, relatively quickly. And then the other might be able to come along over a period of time. There's mm-hmm. going to be phases of the core project. It won't all be built at one time. In Bay, the Corps of Engineers had proposed two gate structures. I think they're about a billion dollars each, one on Dickinson Bayou and one on Clear Lake. And the reason the cost is so high is if you put the gates up and then it rains, you have to get the flood, the the rainwater out of the bayou, so you have to have huge pumps. Mm. And so, again, the scale of these things that we're talking about is beyond anything we've ever seen built in this part of the world. So... Uh, I don't. I don't criticize you know anyone for these costs. It's just the scale of the problem we're trying to address is just so large. Mm. And so, I mean, I think something that points us to is absolutely what are some things as we've mentioned. You know, the, the Ike Dyke project has been has been in conversation for for a very long time now. This is not a new proposal. It's a proposal that's changed quite a bit. It's a proposal that keeps developing, expanding. But you know, the other flip side of that is, I think I think a lot of people I I know feel very lucky that we've not had another Hurricane Ike yet. Um, mm. And I mean, especially as we started the hour, really talking about the increased likelihood of these events. 
being able to build something <laughs> that could offer some of these protections you're talking about, and in the near term, feels really essential. Well, I think the, the, the key will be trying to get as much done as quickly as we can. Some of these things do just simply take longer time than others. Of you know, we have an advantage with our project. It will be linked with a navigation project. And so, mm. you know, to be able to do both of those things together will probably be a, be a benefit uh, in terms of timing. Uh, but so much of what we're trying to do is get really the core to work with us and to get the governmental entities to work with us to recognize that we can be a part of a larger solution, that we're, we're not competing with the, uh, with the ICDI, with the coastal barrier at all. We see ourselves being um, essentially part of an overall approach to protecting the region from big storms. Mm. And, you know, the, the coastal barrier will protect us to a certain level. And then beyond that, the park plan will protect us. And the park plan has the ability to be built kind of by itself, similar to different pieces of the um, coastal barrier project. So I think that if we kind of all throw in together and work together to get the kind of the best that we can get, you know, as soon as we can get it. I think that would be the best for all of us. So I'm wondering, are, are there other projects that you want to highlight that you think are important to general mitigation or preparedness uh, that you'd like to draw our attention to or things that we should be starting to think about perhaps as we, we look at this future with more storms? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, we looked at a lot, of, there's a lot of low-lying land on the Texas coast, and mm. we're never going to regulate to stop development. So we have looked at different ways of paying landowners for basically keeping these lands undeveloped. And so we have come up with payments for ecological services that these lands provide, number one of which is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere mm. and storing it in the, in the soil of the prairies, in the trees of the bottomland forest, in the wetlands of the coast. And so that is something that I think is going to unfold in the private sector, really apart from the government, and um, will at least keep us from worsening our damages in the future. Mm. Uh, so flood damage, you know, kind of reduction would be both protection and then prevention of kind of, if you will, unwise development. And you can do that by frankly, just be encouraging landowners to keep their land undeveloped. And mm. we're working really hard uh, uh, with pursuing that. Great. So something that I, I want to pivot to slightly there is I know one of the, the kind of primary things you've been doing lately is really thinking about climate change writ large and potential solutions to addressing you know this, this much larger project uh, and problem. And so I'm wondering if you can talk some about the solutions you're focusing on, in particular B Carbon, the, the right. organization that you're running now. Well, B Carbon is a ecological services uh, kind of concept. Um, it's a uh, nonprofit. Uh, I'm, I'm CEO of it, and we are setting up protocols for issuing carbon credits that corporations can purchase and use as part of their overall blueprint for carbon reduction that every company that we're talking to these days is pursuing. And these would be nature-based carbon credits. They are a companion to the technological credits that are being pursued. And uh, there's, you know, nature is hard to work with. Uh, we're not used to it. We, we kind of got to manage people as much as you don't manage the nature. You know, it's kind of we have nature as a gift, if you will. It's mm. the land ownership that needs to be uh, worked with, and the landowners have to co cooperate and pursue certain management concepts and. Um, 
and we have set up uh, a soil-based uh, protocol, a forest-based protocol, a coastal wetlands blue carbon protocol, and more recently, not so much nature-based, but we've developed a protocol for plugging, leaking oil and gas wells that are oh, wow. leaking methane. And so we think that we've got a nice portfolio with more to come. So we're really excited about what we're doing at B-Carbon. And it came out of a stakeholder group at the Baker Institute that we formed at Rice and uh, started in November of 2019. And of course, the pandemic hit not long after that. And we've done most of this through Zoom. So it's quite a fascinating <laughs> uh, kind of uh, development concept of, uh, for a nonprofit. I, I want to come back to, to B Carbon in just a second, but I see that we have um, David on the line with the question. So let's go to David first. Hi, David. You're on the air. What's your question? All right. Thank you for taking my call. I just have a, a question for the guest there. Uh, I've been listening to the show, and I haven't heard anything mentioned about the San Jacinto watershed. Um, you know, we've had multiple floods here. I've been here since 1972, and I've been through several major floods the 78, the 94, and of course, Harvey, which was unprecedented to say the least uh are there any plans for the San Jacinto watershed that you can go over well there certainly are plans being developed for the San Jacinto watershed by Harris County Flood Control District I'm not necessarily uh up to date on exactly what's being proposed up there I spent a lot of time up in Kingwood after Harvey mainly uh, with regard to the big buildup of sandbars that were uh, kind of across the uh, uh, various uh, kind of entrances, I think primarily where Spring and Cypress Creek come into uh, Lake Correct. Houston. And, I mean, that is clearly a problem that I think will recur. I think, you know, the sedimentation and kind of clearance, it's going to, I think, probably require a perpetual commitment of uh, resources to keep those uh, drainage ways cleared out so that the big storm events can pass. Uh, I would say the problems that uh, exist on the San Jacinto, at least up in the Kingwood area, are somewhat unique to uh, some of the problems I'm seeing in other parts of uh, of the watershed, but clearly demands a lot of attention. And um, I think there's also been concern about up uh, developments and the runoff from certain specific developments. There have been buyouts that have been proposed up there. But I think it's it's kind of like, in a way, each of our watersheds, we have 22, 23 watersheds in Harris County. And in a way, it's going to require a different set of approaches, uh, probably for each of them. But I think certainly the San Jacinto is a unique watershed in that regard. Thanks it so is, much, David. And the management, uh, it seems the management of it has, has come under you know a lot of scrutiny since Harvey uh, from the uh, way the Conroe release was, was handled and everything. I'm sure you're aware of that, which was a major contributor to the flooding uh, in our area. Uh, I just, it, it seems kind of mind-boggling that uh, nothing nothing has been, has been done since to procure any kind of program that would, you know, curtail this type of activity in the future. You know, one of the problems, I think, uh, if, if I remember correctly, uh, Lake Conroe is primarily set up as a water supply reservoir not a flood control reservoir mm. and uh, and it's operated in tandem with Lake Houston to provide water supply uh, among others to to the city of Houston uh, and I think one of the problems is we put you know development has come in after these reservoirs have been put in place um, and 
nobody at the governmental level, when they designed these reservoirs, thought about the type of and the scale of development that we have had. And so I think we're looking at a situation where you had one type of solution now having other demands placed upon it, and the uh, governmental entities are trying to make that pivot to be able to deal with both a water supply and a flood uh, problem. But, for example, if you released a whole bunch of water out of Conroe and then the rain didn't come, then you would be perhaps in a poor water supply situation. So, you know, it's going to take some pretty fancy computer modeling and some uh, some very interesting kind of well-timed decisions. And, you know, the government moves a little slower than that, but I think we're moving in that direction. But it's, uh, it is not a simple task. It sounds simple when you say it, but the actual moving parts are quite difficult to get all put together. And I wish that weren't the case, but I'm afraid that that's just kind of the reality of these types of uh, massive systems we build. And if we don't build them for multiple purposes, then they work well for one thing, but not for the other. Thanks so much for your call, David. Uh, I think that that gets to one of these these larger considerations that we talk about frequently is just the scale of Harris County, the scale of Houston makes it really tricky. And you know, really focusing in on watersheds down there would be a great uh, kind of point to to hone into. But it is it's just it's hard because these, as you point out, you know, every watershed's going to have yep. unique challenges. Uh, one thing that I do think really runs across is exactly what you were pointing out about that just consistent developing over areas that we know we we really can't afford to be developing on and thinking of ways to to mitigate and prevent that and, you know, the right. different things you've mentioned. Uh, I, I see we also have a question from Bill, so let's go over to Bill. Hi, Bill. You're on the air. What's your question? Yeah, hi there. Thank you. I appreciate KPFD and uh, having uh, Mr. Blackburn on. I've heard him on KPFD for at least, at least three decades. <laughs> More than <laughs> and, once. Uh, <laughs> more than once, in fact, yes. But uh, now the, the Ike Dyke is the price tag is, Sixty-eight billion. Is that what you said? I think fifty-seven billion. Five seven billion. Five okay. seven billion. And and this is it. Is this designed to protect the uh, petrochemical infrastructure along uh, the ship channel? It, it really. Did, they didn't claim very many benefits for protecting the channel. Most of the benefits came from protecting the city of Galveston and Galveston County area. Mm. There are some residual benefits, um, but if you look okay, at, but just, most are not. And, and so, and so, if we do have a direct hit on the ship channel, uh, what's the billions of dollars in infrastructure that could be damaged by that? Oh, it's hundreds of of billions. We've calculated and we've made an estimate of the damage that would occur, and it's way in excess of $100 billion. Um, Yeah, and and that doesn't uh, include the damage to uh, our oil-based economy either. Or the damage to the environment. So none of those are considered. Or the damage to people living in the area who will be impacted by whatever comes out of the petrochemical belt. Yeah, Yeah, okay. So this actually uh, doesn't protect the the vital uh, heart of Houston then. Not from the very, not from the three, fours, and fives. Okay, so is any, anyone down there concerned, industry along the ship channel, that uh, they may not have a job? Well, I think a, we're getting well, we're getting good support for the Galveston Bay Park Plan as an add-on, as a kind of companion to the 
uh, coastal barrier just simply for that reason, because we can protect against a three, four, five event, and it would be additional uh, protection. And we're seeing, I think, more traction than we've ever seen in the past, just because that realization that, one, there are limitations to what the governmental methods can can achieve, and two, that we need more protection, uh, and we need protection against the big storms. If if we don't protect against the big storms, we're just going to continue to be vulnerable. Yeah, okay. And and I would recommend that if people are really interested in, in finding rainfall totals and uh, bank heights, uh, the Harris County Flood Control has ex- excellent maps. Yeah, they uh, do. They have an excellent, yeah, excellent web- website. Yeah, basically, I found out that if you want to dig any detention ponds along Cypress Creek to try to mitigate that disaster, you can't do it. So uh, <laughs> It's a scale problem. Yeah, it's just unbelievable about. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for your call, Bill. Yeah, I mean, this gets to the heart of what we've been talking about and the the very real risks. And so I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking us through both some of these larger, you know, city and, and county issues, but also, you know, the Speed Center's proposals and some of the work that you've been doing. I, I, I want to pivot slightly because we're, we're quickly coming to the end of our time together. Um, but, you know, something that I that I love is, you know, you've been you've been working across environmental issues from an array of, uh, of, of ways uh, for decades, as you mentioned, you know, in the courtroom, in academia, with the public. Um but also, you're a poet, and and a lot of a lot of the work that you've done as a poet is really focused on connecting to the earth. And you know, I, I have a arts and humanities background, and you know, I think about culture a great deal. And so, I, I really want to take a moment just to talk a little bit about the role of poetry in your work, and and why that actually is directly related to to the many other things that you've done as a a lifelong career environmentalist. Well, I mean, the poetry part of my life is a very personal part it's um i don't do it i mean i'm not a published poet in the sense of um commercial uh, poetry i've put i put a book or two out and the number of commercial poets in the world is very small yeah, so you're in good company <laughs> uh, and but i do it uh, for personal enjoyment but a lot of this has to do with sort of you know it's easy to get depressed about a lot of the issues mm-hmm. that i have spent my career working on and what I have found is that nature can make me whole again. Mm. And so when I've had a bad day, if I can, uh, nothing else, just walk outside and kind of, you know, breathe the air, look at a, you know, look at a beautiful tree, uh, watch some birds move around. Uh, I find that that can restore me in ways that not much else can. And, mm. um, and that I translate into my poetry and try to find ways of expressing kind of this uh, connection and kind of the spiritual uh, power of that connection in terms of helping me live a healthier life. And and so I can uh, translate that into, oh, all sorts of things. You know, in a poem, you can talk to trees. In a poem, you know, you can hug trees. And, um, you know, uh, many of us have been called tree huggers, but seldom <laughs> do you go out and actually hug a tree. But there's a spiritual connection, I think, that we have with all living things that we don't understand very well. And so I like in my poetry to explore the things we don't understand well. Um, mm. You know, I, I love, um, what is it, string theory and um, all of the kind of the the whole area of the small in physics and mm. kind of what we're learning there and kind of you know, alternative worlds that may exist side by side and all kinds of weird things they're coming up with <laughs> these days and calling it science. Um, and uh, the metaphysical is just a 
fun area. And so the metaphysics of, of the kind of the human nature environment kind of mixture is, is kind of what I really enjoy. And um, I find that it um, certainly makes my life more uh, kind of rich to be able to express it and try to express it. And I've got a good friend, Isabel Chapman, who is an artist, and she paints and then I write poems to go with her paintings. And we've oh, done fantastic. all the birds and the, most of the birds that most of us know we've written poems about, most of the animals. Um, you know, we've hit the flora and fauna pretty widely and have had quite a good time doing it. Well, and I think it's just important. I mean, your, your book, uh, Earth Church, is, is very much about connecting spirituality to the land and, and recognizing the way that nature impacts our spirituality and how we think through that. And I just, I think it's it's so significant because exactly as you're saying, it's easy to get bogged down by the grief of, of climate work, of environmental work. I think it's really easy to get frightened by these things. And, and some of it you were talking about actually earlier with just the fact of how people could connect to Galveston Bay, that, you know, bringing nature mm-hmm. back into our lives, finding these points of connection actually really makes us kind of, you know, better citizens of the earth, if we want to frame it like that, but also just more aware of where we live, that that idea of connecting to the fact yeah. that we're a coastal county, right? That these, these kind of disconnects we can have from nature actually help to, or work to, to make some of these blockages possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, the, the concept you're talking about is the concept of place, really. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we have a good concept of Houston as a place. We've got 10 very unique ecological systems around mm-hmm. Houston. Uh, if Houston was in any other part of the country, East Coast, West Coast, we'd be celebrating our ecological abundance. But here, uh, ecology has almost always been perhaps – the enemy of the oil company, the you know wetlands being needing to be filled, endangered species being a hassle, and I think we've downplayed nature, and I think it should be have a much more prominent role in our community than it does. And part of that would be saving nature as part of making room for water. I mean, Absolutely. this whole thing of living with water basically means we're going to have to give more space to water in this community. I, I, I'll say my engineer, Rico, just pointed out, you know, that anticipatory grief leads to an action, which yeah. is a really lovely way of thinking about this and, and ways of moving past it. Jim, we're, we're at time now, so I'm going to have to let you go. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground today and a lot of really important work going on. I, I so appreciate your expertise. So thank you so much for sitting down with us. Oh, thanks for asking me, Weston. I much appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, so this week before we're out, I, I'd like to highlight a, a great ongoing exhibit happening here in town right now. The Houston Climate Justice Museum is currently running a piece called Climate Migrations that includes art and information and thinks about how climate change is impacting migration. And it's open now at Post Houston downtown on Wednesday to Sunday. It's a great way to learn about a growing global challenge and have some fantastic food at the Post after. So you can also stop by the rooftop garden there and learn more about the work that Post Houston is doing to make the building as sustainable as possible. And the exhibits at the Houston Climate Justice Museum are always impeccably well-researched, and we've had their co-director, Aaron Ambroso, on the program before, and he'll be back in the new year to tell us more about the exhibit and their work, so so make sure to stop by and check it out. And if you're looking for a great cause to support, uh, please consider helping one of the organizations that we've, uh, you know, highlighted and talked through throughout the uh, the last few episodes. Um, we are in the, the season of giving, and so we'd encourage you to support some of the, the folks who are really doing this important environmental work work in our community, or if you care about continuing the work of our local nonprofit radio, uh, consider making a gift to KPFT Houston. 
Up next time on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Pulitzer Prize finalist Elizabeth Rush about her new book, The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and Elizabeth and I have a really wonderful conversation about melting glaciers, traveling to Antarctica, and having and raising children in a changing world. Uh, if you're looking for a last-minute gift idea for a budding environmentalist, you know, I, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Um, so as we're, as we're reaching the end here, I'd like to note that if you've missed any of our episodes and want to catch up, uh, make sure to check out the Gulf Streams podcast available now on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Podcast episodes are available after the show on KPFT Houston every Monday. So if you can't listen live, check us out anytime and make sure to tell your friends and family about their source for environmental news right here in Houston. And if you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713 348 4081 or email me at weston at rice.edu. Uh, Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Brayboyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the r show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. <laughs>